Good one. Good to have you here today. And uh, in case you're wondering, this is not the laundry. There's a very special celebration happening today. We've received or receiving into membership 11 new members. And so part of, uh, part of the, the ceremony or the process of accepting people into our church is that we give them a towel which represents servanthood. And if you know your Bible, you know the story of how Christ washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, if you do this, you will be blessed. And so this morning, uh, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be welcoming uh, people into membership. And the thing that, that members of our church do is they serve. I'm going to talk to you about serving today. And just towards the end, we're going to ask Janet Chow to come up, who's been leading the whole uh, service and volunteer serving ministry. She's going to be telling you how you can get involved. But I want to tell you this morning why you should get involved. At the uh, beginning of the last century, the 20th century, there were three uh, personalities that loom large. Albert Einstein, Albert Schweitzer, and Mahatma Gandhi. Now, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, he felt the call of God to go to Africa to be a doctor, to serve and care for those who were broken and sick and needy. People had no access to doctors. And so he went to, to university, he got his degree, and he became a doctor for Africa. He got his wife, together they headed out, and they lived there for the rest of their lives. They served for 40 years. During that time, he wrote all kinds of books, he wrote articles, uh, some called him a philosophy the philosopher doctor, he had a, a strong philosophy of serving. And for serving in Africa for those 40 years and for his contribution to the understanding of, of humanitarian work, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And then we come to Mahatma Gandhi. Some of you are familiar with him. Maybe you saw the movie. Mahatma Gandhi was responsible for really bringing the British Empire to their knees. He forced Britain, really, to leave India and helped India regain their independence. And he did it through peaceful means, through peaceful protest. He did not raise a gun. He did not advocate war or fighting. He did it all through being a peaceful man. Now, if anybody should have won the Nobel Peace Prize, it should have been Mahatma Gandhi. In fact, uh, many say that in the, in the history of the Nobel Peace Prizes, uh, that is their greatest regret. Now, Gandhi was nominated six times, but he never did receive that award. Uh, it's interesting that I think in the mid-1990s, they instituted a brand new Mahatma Gandhi Peace Prize. So, so there you go, Nobel. Uh, then we come to Albert Einstein. Now, Albert Einstein also won a Nobel Prize, but it wasn't for peace. It was for physics. And Albert Einstein had two great heroes, and some of you will absolutely know John Newton, you know, the story of gravity and the apple that fell, and then maybe a, a lesser-known scientist, but those who are scientifically minded will know James Maxwell. And he had those two pictures of John, uh, John Newton on his wall and also James Maxwell on his wall. But one day, he decided he was going to take down those portraits and replace them with, with two different portraits, and you guessed it, he put up a picture of Mahatma Gandhi and Albert Schweitzer. When asked why he decided to replace these two portraits of two very successful scientists, here's what he said. He said, it's time to replace the image of success with the image of service. 
Did you get that? It's time to replace the image of success with the image of service. Now, here's what you and I need to understand about Christianity. Christianity, if it's nothing else, it's all about serving. And if we look through history, folks, here's what we're going to discover. There are many, many famous people that we all know and we all respect and admire. In fact, many of you probably have read biographies of these people. And uh, we think of, I'm thinking of people like uh, Abraham Lincoln. Anybody read the book by Abraham Lincoln? My sister gave me uh, the biography of Abraham Lincoln, and I, I, I li- literally uh, began to read it, and I did not put it down until it was done. It was that compelling. And it was all about a man who decided that he was going to serve his country no matter what it cost. I'm thinking of someone like Nelson Mandela, another man who served his country. I'm thinking of someone like Mother Teresa who left her country and went to India, to to Calcutta, and decided to serve there. I'm thinking of of someone like Martin Luther King Jr. who left uh, the comforts of his world and decided that he would become a public figure to fight for civil rights. Every one of these people signed up to serve. Every one of them said, I'm going to serve no matter what it costs. And if you know the stories of any of these people, you know that it costs them dearly. Abraham Lincoln lost his life, shot in the theater. I think of Nelson Mandela, who was imprisoned for 27 years. If he had just decided that he was going to keep his mouth shut and, and stop fighting for equality, then he would have been free, a free man. But he refused on the grounds that, that he would not go free while there were countrymen, his countrymen, who were considered subhuman. We think of Martin Luther King Jr., who again could have stuck to his pulpit in his church and minded his own business, and perhaps he'd still be alive today preaching. But because he decided to fight for the civil rights of African Americans, and again, in the style of Mahatma Gandhi, he did not raise a gun like Malcolm X did. He did it all peacefully. Martin Luther King Jr., as you know, was shot and killed. Mother Teresa... She was given a house in San Francisco in order for her to do her ministry of caring for the poor. And a wealthy man gave, him a, gave her a large mansion. It was fully furnished, beautiful carpets, the most plush and luxurious furniture you can imagine. And the first thing that she did was she pulled up all the carpets and cast out all of the comfortable furniture. So there was just a bare minimum. And here's what she said. She said, I cannot live in wealth Well, my brothers and sisters live with nothing in Calcutta. All of these people are servants. Now, here's the thing that you and I need to understand, because we look at these people as extraordinary, as remarkable, and they are. But guess what? Jesus Christ has asked us to do exactly the same thing. Imagine for a moment if the whole world, if, if in the population of the whole world, one in three people was that kind of a servant. What kind of a world would we live in today? We would be happy. We would have our needs met. It would be a very, very different world. The question I have for you today is why isn't it? Especially considering that one third of the world's population is Christian. billion people in this world identify themselves as Christians. 
And so my, my question is this. Why isn't this world a better place if one in three people declares that he or she is a follower of Jesus Christ? Research tells us that although one-third of the population is Christian, it certainly isn't living up to the calling or living up to the name. And that name is Jesus. Jesus self-identifies as a servant. And what was Jesus' vision for his church? Jesus saw the church as an army of Christ followers who would go out in obedience to him and serve. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to establish for you the simple fact that you and I were created by God to serve. Look at this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And Paul says this to the believers in Ephesus. He says, is it up there? For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. So here's what you and I need to understand. You and I, first of all, need to understand that before we were even born, God had an image in his head of you. Like the author who has in his, or the author who has in his, in her or mind, a book. And he or she has got the whole plot figured out and, and has got great ideas of how it's going to look. And then the author goes and commits it to paper and out pops a book. Or like the artist who's got a portrait in his mind or her mind. It's clear what, what that portrait or what that masterpiece is going to look like. And then the artist commits it to canvas. Or has anybody ever heard of Mozart? Oftentimes we'll listen to Mo- I'll listen to Mozart and, and uh, Nicholas and I, will, we both like classical music and we'll extol over the beauties and the, how beautiful it is to hear it. And sometimes we'll be listening to a piece and he'll say, that sounds like Mozart, doesn't it? I say, yeah, that, is, that does sound like Mozart. It's got his style. It's got his signature. Do you know what they say about Mozart? Mozart actually had the whole concerto, the whole musical piece in his head, and all he did was commit it then to paper without even mistakes. That's how well he knew the masterpiece in his head. Well, folks, listen, this is the image that the Apostle Paul is giving for us today. God has created every one of us as masterpieces. Every one of us has been called by God to do a special work, to do something in this world whereby we would bring glory to God, for we are God's masterpieces. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you doing the thing that God planned for you to do The thing that, before you were even bored, God had this thing planned for you to do. Are you doing it? Are you working on it right now? Would you like to do it? Because here's what Cross Church is committed to do for all those who become members and all those who say, this is my church, this is my home. We are committed to helping you find your place of service so that you can be the masterpiece that God has ordained or designed you to be. Glory and I, when we go to England, we've been there a number of times, one of the things we love to do is we love to go to the National Gallery. The National Gallery is actually free. Anybody can go to it. And here's the remarkable thing, folks, is when you go to the National Gallery, you are going to see uh, 
paintings or pictures that many of you have seen in books and catalogs, and maybe some of you have even got prints hanging in your home. You're going to see pictures painted by, um, by Rembrandt. You're going to see pictures painted by, by someone like Van Gogh, and so on and so forth. I can tell you the first time I walked into that gallery and saw Vincent van Gogh's painting of the uh, irises. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you're, if you're familiar with art, Marianne, you're a cultured person, so it's you and I, we know, we know this. And then, the, and then Van Gogh's picture of the chair, remember that one? And then there's one of the, of the sunflowers. It's all there, hanging there. And I remember the first time I saw that, I literally brought tears to my eyes because it was, it was such a moving moment that these famous paintings were there For me to see. Now, can I ask you a question? What would you think if you went to an art gallery when you got there? All the pieces had black draping on them, every one of them. You'd go in there and say, What is this place? What's the point of this place? And you know what? This is exactly what you and I do. If you and I are not doing the thing that God has called us to do, if we are not serving as God has called us to serve, it's as though we have put a blank, a black drape over this masterpiece called you. God has called you to be a masterpiece that brings glory to him. That's what you were created for. In other words, to cause people to praise your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus described to us. I'm going to tell you... uh, in art galleries, they've got these, these benches that are situated right in front of these beautiful masterpieces, and people sit down, and they look at these masterpieces, and some people sit there for hours on end. In fact, some people go every day and will sit in front of a masterpiece and just stare at it and study the beauty of it and the, the technicality and the detail and the wonder and the shadings and the colors and so on, and, and, and it's, it's absolutely stunning. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, he actually went to Russia. He'd seen a poster of a picture painted by Rembrandt. It was this, the picture of the prodigal son and the father. And uh, he was so moved by that, that, that uh, poster that he found out where the original was, and he found out that it was in Russia at the Hermitage Museum. And so he, he actually flew there. He stayed there for a couple weeks. And he tells a story about how he would go to the hermitage every day, sit on a bench. He wasn't so much interested in the rest of the, the, the glorious artwork in the hermitage museum, but it was that one piece, and he sat there and he studied it. And he ended up writing a book based on what he wrote, read, and it's considered, it's in the top 100 best Christian books ever written. What happened is that somehow Rembrandt was able to capture the story of the prodigal son. In that masterpiece, God was speaking to Henry now, and I've read the book. I read it a number of years ago. It's one of my favorite books, and my heart was spoken to by that masterpiece. But guess what, folks? God says that every one of you is a masterpiece. God says that every one of you has got something that you can offer this world that nobody else can offer. You say, Pastor Allen, I'm no Rembrandt. Do you want to know something? Not all artwork is a Rembrandt or is a Van Gogh or is a Picasso, thankfully. Not all all artwork is, is famous, but all artwork is artwork and it's precious. Let me give you an example. When my kids were little, they loved to create artwork for mom and dad. And, um, 
In our home, I'm the more of the sentimental one. I never want to throw away any of the artwork. But these kids would bring home artwork. My kids, Nicholas, Jesse, and Sarah, bring home this gorgeous artwork. And we would look at this artwork, and we were convinced this kid is someday going to be a Van Gogh. There's no question about it. And where would that artwork go? It'd go on the fridge. That's right. That's Because that's our art gallery at our house. It's the fridge. And I'm going to tell you something right now, folks. This may be hard to believe, but I'm going to tell you the artwork that my kids created is, to me, far more beautiful, far more precious, far more valuable than anything ever done by Rembrandt or Van Gogh. Someone say amen. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now listen to this. Listen. When God looks at you, you may not see yourself as a masterpiece, But I'm going to tell you, when God looks at you, he sees a masterpiece. You are precious to him. And God wants to use you in order to reveal himself to this world. That's why in the book of Genesis, it says that you and I have been created in the image of God. Now, if you and I have been created in the image of God, you quickly begin to understand, folks, that God, if anybody's a masterpiece, God is right? And if God isn't, so are you, because that's how you are created. You know, I'm going to say I'm very thankful to God for the masterpieces that have come into my life. And I'm going to start with my parents. My mom and dad, once they started going to church, the very first thing that they did is they taught us the importance of serving in the church. And so we got involved in Sunday school, and we got involved in Boys Brigade, and we got involved in, in helping in the at the, the church camp and did the plumbing there and did whatever we could to serve. We were glad to serve. And I'm, I'm, the other thing I'm thankful for is that my dad taught me how to give and how to, how, to, how to tithe. I'm thankful for my grandparents who were also masterpieces. My grandfather only had a grade three education. But my grandparents loved the Lord and they were faithful. And you know what they demonstrated to me? They just demonstrated to me consistent Christian behavior and it inspired me. I watched my parents do, my grandparents do their devotions every night before they went to bed. I thank God for a masterpiece whose name is Alec McNeil. None of you know him, but I do. Alec McNeil was my brigade leader when I was just a young boy. I was in his stockade. And you, some of that doesn't mean anything to you, but it was a boys program. But Alec McNeil was the one who was responsible for leading me to Christ. It's through Alec McNeil that I became a Christian. And I thank God for that masterpiece. I thank God for the masterpiece called Tom Alder. Some of you know Tom and Carol Turner here. Well, Tom Alder is Carol's dad. And Tom Alder, when I was just a little boy, was my Sunday school teacher. And I'm going to tell you, I just ran into him just a, a few months ago, and he said, how's my, how's my boy? Still sees me as one of his kids. He said, uh, so I think I was a pretty faithful, pretty good Sunday school teacher, wasn't I? Just joking around. I said, you're one of the best. A masterpiece, in fact. I think of Joan Zilke. It's Chris's mom. And before we were ever, before I really ever knew Chris, I knew his mom. His mom was a Sunday school superintendent at the church I went to as a child. And I remember Mrs. Zilke challenging us kids to to not think of ourselves, but to think of others. And she talked about the possibility of sponsoring a child in world vision. And I remember as this young boy, I had a paper route, and I went to her and I said, you know what, I want to sponsor a child for world vision. She challenged me. She got me thinking about other people other than myself. She was one of God's masterpieces. 
You know, you wonder to yourself this morning, is do what I have to, does what I have to offer matter? I, I can't be an Abraham Lincoln. I can't be a Mother Teresa. No, you don't have to be. In fact, God doesn't want you to be Abraham Lincoln or Mother Teresa. God wants you to be you. Because you were created to do a special work. This is what Paul tells us. He has created us anew in Christ so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago, before you were even born. But the question is this. Are you doing it? Are you doing what God wants you to do? Some of you will say here today, Pastor Allen, uh, I'm not really doing anything for God. I'm, I'm not serving anywhere. What should I do? Well, I'm going to tell you, you've come to the right place today because, as I said, in a few moments, Janet's going to come up and she's going to tell you how you can start engaging, how you can start getting involved and start using the gifts that God has given to you. But here's what you need to understand. The evidence that you are a serious Christ follower is that you are a servant, that you serve. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you in just a moment. One of the things that has intrigued me in the last couple of years, I've been studying this for three years, and I haven't taught anything on it. I haven't said anything about it. I'm going to just, I'm going to just lift the cover a little bit so you can take a peek at what's in my brain. There's not a lot there, but I'm going to show you a little bit. And, and it's this. There's a, a theology of evidence of conversion or belonging to God. The Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, talks about evidence that we belong to God, that we're doing, uh, we're doing what God wants us to do as his people. Now remember this, folks. Either Old Testament or New Testament, God speaks about his people. One of the prophets actually refers to God's people as the remnant. And that's the thing that's been going through my brain these past few years. But here's, what, here's the thing that I want to draw to your attention this morning. Is that everybody or anybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ is in fact a servant. He or she serves. Now, please understand something, because I don't want anybody going away from here today saying, oh, Pastor Allen says that the way that you become a Christian is by doing good works. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, because the Bible tells us clearly that the way that we're saved, the way that we become Christians, is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in, in his perfection and believing that he has taken away our sin. That's how we become Christians. But what's the evidence? How do we know that we belong to Christ? How do we know that we put our faith in Christ? And I'm going to tell you simply in one word. It's called servanthood. We serve. Look at this passage of scripture from 1 Peter 2.9. And Peter tells all believers this, and it's some very interesting language. He says, however, you are a chosen people. Remember, God's people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people who belong to God. You were chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Folks, anybody who calls himself or herself a Christian or a follower of Christ is summed up in the terms that Peter's using here. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people who belong to God. You were chosen to tell about the excellent uh, qualities of God. I want just to look for a moment at that phrase, a royal priesthood. Because what is he telling us here? He's telling us, 
because many of you are maybe shocked to hear that if you're a Christian, you're a priest. Everybody here today who is a follower of Jesus Christ, everyone here today who is a Christian is in fact a priest. But you're not just any kind of a priest. You are a royal priest. What is he referring to here? Well, first of all, let's look at that word royal. It is obviously referring to the kingdom of God. Now, if you know your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, here's what you're going to discover. You're going to discover that the whole Bible can be summed up in this phrase. God is advancing his kingdom on this earth. From Genesis to Revelation, you see it in Genesis chapter 1. And you see the culmination of everything that's come before in Genesis, uh, Revelation chapter 22, 21 and 22, where God talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Now watch this, folks. You and I as priests are, in fact, servants. And if you do a word study on the word priest, here's what you're going to discover. You're going to discover that a priest is a servant. One of the great uh, rabbis from the 15th century he said this about, about servants. He said a servant, or the word priest can be translated servant or worker or minister because a primary component of priesthood in Judaism is in fact servitude. And so when, when, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, now this is really interesting, when they came out of Egypt, God took them to the place called Mount Sinai. So, so Moses gets them out of Egypt, and everybody knows the story of the Ten Commandments, the, the children of Israel, they've, they've gone through the, the, across the water, into the, into the, across the water, and they're on their way to the Promised Land, and before they get there, they stop at Mount Sinai. And what happens there? God says to Moses, I want you to gather the people together, and I want you to tell them something for me. Now remember, this is before there's a Ten Commandments, this is before there's a tabernacle, and this is before anybody is appointed a priest. Watch this. Exodus 19, verse 6, it says, And you, this is what God's telling the children of Israel, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Now that's where Peter's getting this from. You will be a kingdom of priests, my holy nation, and this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? Before anybody's appointed a priest, before there's a tabernacle, before there's Ten Commandments, God is making it very clear that his people are a kingdom of servants. Now, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart today. Because here's what I know. There's many, many people who go to church. There's many people going to church all their life. But they're doing it more because of a religious duty or because they wanna, they, they're hoping that somehow it will be like a fire insurance. They'll escape hell and go to heaven. But what you need to understand is that as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I have got to serve. It's not negotiable. It is the reality of who and what people of God are. So here's what we discovered. Jesus, in fact, sets for us an example in fact, Peter here, now he's calling us priests. We're called to serve. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as our high priest or our chief servant. And this is consistent with what Jesus says about himself. In fact, Jesus gives us a quick snapshot of who he is and who we need to be. Look at this passage in Matthew 20. And Jesus says this, ready for this? Anyone wanting to be a leader among you 
must be your servant. And if you want to be right at the top, you must serve like a slave. Now, how many people want to be Christians? Because, oh, there's a few people here. Because he's saying here that you actually have to be like a slave. Now, this, is, this goes contrary to what our culture tells us, right? Our culture says, hey, you don't have to be a slave. You got your rights, and you need to fight for yourself and look out for number one. But Jesus is telling us something altogether different. Now, can you imagine 2.2 billion people on this planet who are self-described Christians? If 2.2 billion people on this planet would suddenly decide that they were going to actually follow Jesus the way Jesus calls us to follow Jesus, this would be a very different world. So we have to draw a conclusion here, folks, that there's something wrong with this 2.2 billion people who call themselves Christians. Jesus says, your attitude must be like my own. For I did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to belong to God's people. You know, again, we talk about the evidence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And the very first thing you need to know is that you need to serve. When I was in, uh, I mean, it's not easy. Can I just tell you that right now? It's really not easy. When I first started at this church, we were actually over on Elgin Avenue, uh, just a few streets over. And uh, there, were, there was no children's program there at the time. And so I decided we were going to start a club. We called it Kids Club. And uh, I preached my sermons on Sunday, did everything else, and also led the Kids Club program, which I don't do anymore. But one night after Kids Club, it was about half an hour after all the kids left, I get a knock on the door. And it's not a, it's a, so I thought, "Uh uh-oh, someone's mad. So I opened the door, and sure enough, there's an irate father at the door. He's come to complain. He said, why are my kids being discriminated against? I said, well, what do you, sir, I don't, who are your kids? And he told me who his kids were. I said, okay. And uh, I said, well, we're not, we never discriminate against anybody. Well, if I'm sending my kids to this church, I expect that my kids should be treated with respect and blah, blah, blah. And I can't remember the whole long speech. But I can tell you this, that there was... We had a bit of problems with his son, and we actually had to discipline him. Uh, and we don't never touch the kid ever. No, no way. We just made him to go sit on the side and wait his turn until he calmed down and knew how to act in public. Well, he went home and told his dad that we were discriminating against him. And I'm I'm sitting there and I'm being I'm just I'm just getting it both barrels. And, and here's the voice in my head. Anybody get little voices? I hear voices all the time. Ask my wife. <laughs> and I hear this voice in my head, and the, the voice is saying, Alan, you don't need to take this. I don't need to take this. And no longer am I saying to myself, I don't need to take this. And suddenly I hear another voice in my head says, oh, yes, you do. You see, this is what happens when you and I show up to serve God. We're doing our very best. All these volunteers showing up every Tuesday night, not getting a paycheck, not getting paid for this, but volunteering. They've come to serve and to serve as priests, right? We're serving as unto God. And I said to the man, look, at, I'm, I, I wanna, first of all, I want to apologize to you that you would think that we would discriminate against your kids. If I was a father and I felt that about my kids, I'd be upset too. And as I'm apologizing to this man for something that we were not guilty for, as I'm apologizing to him, 
and validating who he is, I recognize that I'm actually serving this man as Jesus would serve him. And I saw the lines in his face soften, and suddenly he was no longer angry, and suddenly he starts to say, well, actually, my son gives me a lot of problems too. Oh, really? And next thing you know, we're talking about how we can actually help his son, and, and next thing you know, we're friends. All because I decided I was going to be a servant the way Christ calls me to be a servant. If you want to be right at the top, you must serve like a slave. Your attitude must be like my own. Now listen to this, folks, because some of you are saying, well, how does this apply to my life? Well, if you're a parent here today, I'm going to tell you that sometimes you feel like a slave. Isn't that right with your kids? Your job is to have the attitude of Christ. Your job is to show up and to serve your children even as Jesus would serve your children. What about your spouse? Guess what? Same thing applies. You serve your spouse the way Jesus would serve you, caring for you, helping you, meeting each other's needs. You think of Christ when he came to this earth. What did he come here for? Did he need to come here for his own sake? Absolutely not. The Bible says he left the splendor of heaven. He left the presence of the fellowship of God, his Father, the place of purity and holiness and, and, and ultimate beauty. And he came to this broken, twisted world to serve us, to care for us, to meet our needs, to rescue us from our sin, to show us a new way of living, to give us abundant life, a new life, and eternal life. I mean, Jesus came to give us the whole package, and how did we treat him when he got here? The Bible says that we whipped him and we mocked him, and we spat upon him, and we humiliated him, and then we nailed him to a cross. And you would think that Jesus would say, maybe he had that little voice in his head, the one that I had, and he would say, I don't need this. I'm out of here. Or that he would call all the angels of heaven, the hosts of heaven down to the earth and just finish everybody off. <laughs> no, but he never did that, did he? Thank God. What did he do? I'll tell you what he did. He went to the cross. And the Bible says this, look at this. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross for your sake and for mine. Why? Because Jesus saw what was past the cross. He saw what was past the humiliation and the crucifixion. He saw a humanity liberated and set free from the powers of darkness. That's why Jesus came to serve. And guess what? That's why Jesus has called you and I to serve. You and I are his priests. We are his servants on this earth, called by God to make a difference. Look at this verse here in Mark 8, 35. Here's what Jesus says. He says, only those who throw away their lives for my sake and the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. Janet, can you come up here for a moment? And as Janet comes here and tells you a little bit how, how you can sign up to serve, and then I'm going to close after that. I want to tell you a, a brief little story. Jesus is saying here this morning that if you really want to live, then you need to, you need to throw your life away. In other words, you've got to stop putting yourself first. You've got to stop living for yourself. You know, one of the things I, I was talking to our elders about, about our, you know, to our board, about having some kind of a tagline. You know, every church has got a tagline. Every business has a tagline. I thought maybe cross-church tagline could be, 
uh, come and throw your life away at Cross Church, but they didn't go for that. I don't know if everybody would get that. Come and throw your life away. Uh, But essentially, folks, that's exactly what we're asking you to do. It's so radical and it's so crazy that I think those who are really serious about following God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength would say, yeah, that's what I want to be part of. And so, Jenna, tell us how we can be part of that. And then I want to tell you a story. Good morning, everyone. So I want to tell you, or as Pastor Allen mentioned, uh, my name's Janet, for those that I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet. And uh, one of my jobs at the church is I am the serving ministry director. So it's my job to help everybody uh, get connected to their area of serving here at the church. So I want to tell you a little bit about a new approach that we have to serving. Uh, And in the past, where we've asked you to sign up for a particular ministry, we're not going to do that anymore. What we are going to ask you to do is to sign up to take a serving orientation. So our new approach involves matching volunteers with their specific gifts, skills, and abilities to ministry needs. So rather than just signing up for the ministry, we're going to match you to a ministry that best suits your skills and ability. And that's because we want you to succeed. And we think you have a much better chance of succeeding if you're matched to a ministry that uh, is right in line with what God's given you to do. So how are we going to do this? So the first step is to decide, make the decision that you want to commit to serve God. The second step will be to take a serving orientation course, and we've got uh, six dates in November. Four of them are on uh, Sunday morning, so again, we want to make it really easy for you to attend these sessions. So they're going to be alternating Sundays, one during the first service, and then uh, the following week it'll be during the second service, and they'll all be held in the gym. And then there'll also be two Mondays in November that you could sign up for as well. If, you just, if you're already serving on Sunday and you just can't get uh, somebody else to, uh, to uh, back you up for that particular Sunday, we do have two Monday night sessions for you. So I would uh, ask that uh, everyone uh, sign up for that. And when you come to the orientation session, I'm going to tell you how to sign up to take uh, gift assessments. So we're going to make available to everybody three different uh, gift assessments. And the first assessment is a, it's called a grace gifts assessment. And it's to assess the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given each of us. And then the second assessment is a leadership assessment. And that's going to help give you insight as to how you fit within a serving team. And the third assessment is a personality assessment, and that is going to help you understand how God has wired you for service. So uh, anyone who attends the orientation will be given instructions on how to do uh, these different tests. We're also going to ask you to fill out a skills inventory. So we want to have a complete inventory of all the skills that all the people in our church have, And that will also help with the matching process. So if you didn't catch all that or if you're confused, don't worry about it. Just sign up for a serving orientation session, and then uh, we'll uh, get you set up with everything that you need to know. Now, once you've done the gifts testing, then the matching will start happening. And we have serving counselors 
that will help uh, uh, match your specific giftings with ministry needs. So that would be the next step. Following that is ministry-specific training. So if you're going to be serving in a ministry that requires training, we'll make sure that you're properly trained. And then uh, we want to allow everybody to have a six-week trial period. So, uh, And this is specifically for you to make sure that where you've been placed is really a good match for you and you're feeling very comfortable about your serving, and also for the ministry director to make sure they're feeling comfortable with your serving. So if anybody's not comfortable, that's okay. We're just going to try another match because there's definitely a job for everybody in this room. I can guarantee you I, will, I could find everybody in this room a job. So our goal is to make it fun and easy for you to serve because we really want your serving time to be the best hours of your week. That's our goal. Now, finally, I want to tell you about this thing called the serving catalog. And if you were on the, if you were at the class on Wednesday night, you already got a copy of this. But for those that weren't there, I do have some of these catalogs at the serving kiosk. It lists all the 28 different ministry areas we have at Cross Church, and it also lists 215 jobs. And actually, somebody just told me they were looking at the catalog, and they thought of another job that's not in there, so I guess now it's 216. So come see me if you'd like to get a copy of the serving catalog and also to sign up for an orientation class. Now, I would like to announce that we're going to be receiving 11 new servers into membership this morning. And uh, after the membership service, I would like to invite you to celebrate with all of us by enjoying cupcakes that Brenda Barrett, who is the head of the new hospitality men, uh, ministry, has made for us. So she has served us by making these cupcakes. And our elders are going to serve all of you these cupcakes. So the theme for today is really serving. Thank you. I just want to close with a little story that I read uh, this week. A little girl by the name of Sarah, she was in uh, grade two or three, and she uh, was in the class of a, the wife of a doctor by the name of David, um, can't, can't remember how to say his last name, uh, Securia. And Dr., uh, doc, let's call him Dr. David, he talks about how his wife was teaching the kids in her class, that everybody needed to serve. And so she was giving out little jobs to all the children. I mean, there's not a lot that you can do when you're in grade two or three, but there's something that they can do. And so this little Sarah was given the job to bring a flower every week to put in the vase. And the flower in that vase was meant to cheer everybody up. Uh, she was responsible to be the one that, that brought happiness to everybody by just simply bringing a flower every week to put in the vase. Well, little Sarah did that faithfully. Every week she went and she picked some dandelions or whatever she could find in her yard or in the surrounding area and she grip it in her sweaty little palm and, and bring those dandelions. You can imagine it. And she stick that in the, in the vase every week. And it really was quite beautiful. It was quite, uh, uh, quite touching for the teacher. And then little Sarah, they discovered... Was, was not something wasn't right. She was becoming increasingly weak and obviously sick. 
And to her parents' horror, they discovered that she had leukemia. And it wasn't long before little Sarah couldn't come to church anymore to bring her flowers, but she made sure her parents, one of her parents, would bring the dandelion for her and make sure it went in that phase. She became very, very sick and uh, really unable to, to walk, and her dad scooped her up one Sunday. She insisted that she go to church that Sunday, and uh, she had written a little note, and she wanted to bring it to the church. And when, when Dad walked into the church with this sick little girl, his little girl asked, Dad, please put me down. I want to go, and I want to put the flowers in the vase myself. And little girl, little Sarah, walked up to the front, and after the pastor found out that little Sarah was sick, he decided he was going to come and bring that vase and put it on the pulpit. And it, that it would be a reminder to everybody to pray for little Sarah. So that Sunday morning, little Sarah came up and, and uh, put the flowers in the, in the vase and left a little note there. Four days later, she died. And... The pastor took that little note that little Sarah had written and actually handed it to the doctor and said, I want you and your wife to see this little note. And little Sarah, with her crayon, wrote a note that said simply, Dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor of my life. Sarah. Those were the last, last words. And then she died just four days later. I'd like you to, to pray with me right now. Because whatever it is that God's asked you to do, it's a great honor. There's nothing that's too, too small. Everything matters. This is why Jesus, in demonstrating to, what, demonstrating to us what serving is, he got on his feet and he washed his disciples' feet. And he said to his disciples, if you do this, you'll be blessed. God, I thank you this morning that you've given us the privilege of being your people, being willing to serve. I pray, God, that by your spirit you would help us, that you give us the grace, give us the strength, give us the ability that we need, Lord, to do your will. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus who shows us how to really live. God, we can do nothing except by your grace and except by your strength. And so, Father, this morning, we want to show up for service. We want to remove the black draping from the masterpiece. We want the world to see what you have created, and we want to show up and do the thing that you've caused and called us to do. Help us to be masterpieces that are used for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.